I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. California has reached a startling milestone, 20,000 people dead from COVID-19. The state is reporting more than 10,000 new cases a day, and hospitals are nearly full. The upcoming holiday season could make these numbers even worse. Chronicle reporter Adine Vaziri is here with the latest on the state's third surge. Then we'll hear from Chronicle Education reporter Jill Tucker with some rare good news. Schools that have reopened are so far proving safer than the general community, and transmission of coronavirus cases is rare. But first, Adine. Adine Vaziri, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Heather. How are you? Good to talk to you again. Um, Sadly, it's not good news. We have a lot of um, uh, bad data points to talk about today in the virus world, Um, one of which is 20,000 COVID-19 fatalities in California now, and a record 10,567 hospitalizations. So um, obviously things are not going well as we battle this third surge. No. Now we're the third ranking state with the most fatalities behind New York and Texas. Um, Mm. And it's scary, even though, you know, our population, as Gavin Newsom likes to remind us, is that of 21 states combined. It's still cause for concern because all all the numbers are just going up, up, up. So um, it's likely, according to experts you talk to, that this is the result of Thanksgiving travel and socializing and people gathering. And um, of course, the cases come a bit later, hospitalizations come after that, and then uh, fear that deaths could climb even higher. Right. So we're seeing cases have jumped 80% over the previous week. And the way this virus works is just exponential, right? So it's so contagious that as the numbers go up, we see that affect all areas. And um, so, you know, a lot of us actually started around Halloween and then uh, the Thanksgiving gatherings and travel built on it. And now as these numbers are going up, we're about to go right into Christmas, which is a longer holiday. And people are more, even the people who kind of resisted Halloween and Thanksgiving, this is the one they're most likely to kind of get together with family and friends for. And there's, you know, just people are tired of this. After nine months, everyone's just kind of exhausted of uh, following the rules. And they're kind of like letting their guards down a little bit. I'm hearing more pushback just from talking to people and on social media about the new state guidelines. Um, So much of California is now back into sheltering in place. But I'm hearing more pushback on that, whether it be playgrounds or outdoor dining or um, or what have you. It seems like people are angrier, especially the part about not seeing any friends outside even, Um, you know, like it didn't seem like it was an issue before to go on a hike with a friend if you were wearing masks and now even that technically is not allowed so it seems like people are just fed up right um i mean it's funny because there's kind of the the thinking about what that we're seeing in not necessarily in california but in other states where people are like don't take away my personal freedoms and um those arguments kind of like tie into the arguments we have here now where it's like these restrictions are too much. They, you know, obviously coming from different places, but uh, the the idea is the same. You know, I think the argument is, you know, we've been living with a pandemic for nine months now. We know what we need to do to kind of stay safe. Um, at least in California, we've been really good about wearing masks and social distancing. So this may feel like a bit blunt to say, well, you can't do anything now. It's, um, 
it, it seems very severe. And I think that's coming from a place where healthcare officials are really concerned about hospital capacity and they don't really know what else to do. So they figure by going so extreme, they'll get at least some compliance. Not everyone's mm-hmm. going to fall in line and there's going to be a lot of pushback, but they're hoping that that level of compliance they do get will help kind of rein in the numbers. It's funny you mentioned that the line of argument here is different than in red states because they're, you know, it's just seems to be more about don't take away my personal freedom. I don't want to wear a mask. I shouldn't have to do this. But here I'm hearing so many comments. Is this really based on science? Where's the data on playgrounds to back this up? So it seems like people here want to follow the data, science, and facts, as the city officials keep saying, but aren't convinced in these instances that it all holds up. Exactly. And, you know, the... There's so many studies out now that you could make your point with any, like, right. if you just search the right term, you can, there's a, there's a, <laughs> playgrounds are good. You will find there's something. a scientific <laughs> paper to back that. And in fact, I spoke to four different doctors today to, for various articles. And even within, within that group, I found really uh, different views on the way this should be handled. Some were like, mm-hmm. yes, you know, we're, if we run out of beds, they're, they're going to start turning people away. You know, you won't be able to get into the hospital. And uh, others are like, you know, people here are smart. They know what they're doing. We can uh, we can work within restrictions, but don't, you know, it's kind of, they call it the safe sex approach, right? You don't, mm-hmm. you don't tell teenagers to just not have sex. You say, if you're going to have sex, do A, B, and C. <laughs> so <laughs> Harm reduction, they call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with so many more people getting sick, who exactly is being affected? In the beginning of the um, pandemic, it was largely Latino people here in San Francisco because they tend to be essential workers and live in congregate settings. But who who now is getting sick? So now it's hitting every age group and ethnicity in in the state. It's just so widespread now that um, while Latinos still make up a large part of the group that is affected by by this virus, now it's really everyone. And you look at the uh, case rates and the hospitalizations and the um, deaths, and it's really, I got a chart from the state today, and those bar graphs have really leveled off. Um, it's affecting almost every every population equally now. And, and the same thing with the deaths. A majority of the people dying in California right now are over the age of 50. Mm-hmm. But the infections are happening and the median age of infections is closer to like early 30s. But you can't really separate them all because the infections fuel the deaths and young people come into contact with older people. You know, you go to grocery stores, you or you live with, you know, people of different ages. So it's all working off each other. And it's kind of this perfect storm uh, that's that's driving all the numbers up. Yeah. Um, You had a really alarming statistic in your story um, on sfchronicle.com, got to get that in there, Um, that even though younger people are getting um, the virus more often, the uh, mortality rate obviously is worse the older you get. And currently in California, if you get it and you're over 80, that your mortality rate is 40%. Yeah. That was really shocking to me. Yeah, it's frightening. Yeah, there's no other way to put it. And it's... I would say that those people are probably being more careful and trying to stay home and, you know, realizing they're more vulnerable. But the more people are moving about, even younger people, it's going to it's going to affect people in that age group. 
And you talked to a doctor who said that um, you're now less likely to be admitted into the hospital with COVID than you were a few months ago. Is that because um, people aren't getting as sick so they don't need to be hospitalized or because there aren't enough beds? They're they're running out of beds. Um, They're running out of staffing is running low. Um, They're creating all these overflow sites, but they don't have the staff for them. I think Gavin Newsom on Monday announced that he's looking to contract close to a thousand out-of-state workers and he's also encouraging encouraging people who recently retired or let their medical licenses expire to rejoin the workforce. Um, and after nine months of dealing with this, a lot of healthcare professionals are just fatigued. You know, they just, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, they can't do it anymore. Um, so, you know, a few months ago, I think when our rates were good in October and you didn't feel well and they would probably let you into the hospital. But now even getting a, you know, calling 911 and having someone come out and get you, um, they're going to do a tougher evaluation to make sure that you're worthy of coming into the hospital and Mm -hmm. taking that bed space. Well, let's end our segment on a positive note. The vaccine is coming. And I was seeing a lot of social media and news um, from England today that um, elderly people there started getting vaccinated today. I saw one man was named William Shakespeare. Yes, which he, is pretty awesome. he was the second person to get it. Yeah, <laughs> That's so cool. Um, so there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but we have to get through the tunnel first. Um, so what is the vaccine picture here? What do you know about when it's going to arrive in California and who's going to get it? So um, Dr. Fauci said uh, he was speaking today. He said, vaccines are really the game changer here. And um, all the medical care professionals think this is really the light at the end of the tunnel. And like we're seeing a surge now, but this will this will be the last surge that we do see because of the vaccine. As you know, they're rolling it out uh, in the UK right now. And then I think we'll have it in America um, by next week. But for you and I, you know, the general population, um, people who are somewhat younger and healthy and we're so young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't think we will, it'll be available to us till April, May, uh, yeah. maybe June. And you need two doses. So you'll get the first dose. And then four to six weeks later, you'll get another dose. I believe that's the timeline. And then it takes like a month or something for it to become truly effective and protect mm. you. So Fauci said that we will get back to um, going to you know, bustling restaurants, uh, sports arenas, live concerts and things like that by the by the second half of 2021. So uh, okay. that's that's what we can look forward to. But things will start. But things to will get gradually better. improve um, infection wise and death wise as like healthcare workers and older people get vaccinated. Yes. Everything will gradually improve. It's just that we can't return to normal. Yeah. Time. And you know what? We're going to have um, leadership in the White House. We're going to have an actual <laughs> pandemic team that knows what it's doing and is uh, proactive. So um, and if uh, Joe Biden's discussed asking people to wear masks for 100 days, which if people uh, do that, it, we can see things change really quickly. Um, I think mm-hmm. once things start to happen, it'll be really, really fast and we'll be out of this before we know it. So there is hope. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're so pessimistic that that makes me happy to hear you say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, thank you for that compliment. <laughs> that was a backhanded compliment. <laughs> I am, well, I will say, t- I am feeling optimistic for the first time in a long time. So, oh, yes. good. 
I say that because I kept teasing you throughout this whole year that you were literally never leaving your house at all with three children. Exactly. So, I mean, I, me. I've been very pessimistic and uh, for the first <laughs> time I'm seeing the light at the end of this and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a rough couple of weeks and months. It's we can't think that it's over because we the vaccine is on the way. It's going to be we have to be really careful until yeah. we reach that point. So it's not going to be easy getting there, but we will get there. Okay. And when we do, we're going to have a Chronicle get together in a restaurant, maybe in a bar. At the French Laundry. Can we go to the French Laundry, please? (laughs) Oh, who's paying? (laughs) (laughs) If we can expense it, I'm there. Okay. We'll call it investigative reporting. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for joining me. Good to talk to you as always. Bye. Bye. We'll be right back with Jill Tucker with some good news on the reopening of schools in California. Jill Tucker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Always good to see you, even if it's only on Zoom. (laughs) Exactly. So you have a really interesting story out um, now, sfchronicle.com, looking at whether it's true that schools are a dangerous place to be during the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, we'll get into more detail in a minute, but what was your overall takeaway? Well, what we're seeing is a lot more data and research coming out um, from schools that have reopened um, this fall. And uh, in general, what we're seeing is that research and the data are showing that it is not dangerous to be in schools, not unsafe to be in schools, that uh, we're not seeing massive outbreaks, we're not seeing uncontrolled um, exposure. Um, In general, what experts are saying is that with all the mitigation efforts in place, it's safe. And in fact, Um, Looking at Marin County, where they have done a really good job of tracking cases in schools and they were they really pushed hard to reopen and were one of the first uh, counties in the state to really see a large number of schools reopen in September and and even more now. Um, And and really um, out of all of that, since all that time. And the way they sort of look at it, it's kind of a funky data point, but there are three, there have been 350,000 student days. So on average, about 12,000 kids are in-person learning and hybrid programs in schools across the county. And in that entire time, they have only seen two cases that have been transmitted at schools, both adult to adult. Um, In one case, it was two teachers sitting next to each other hour after hour, apparently on computers, and there was a case transmission there. Um, The other case we don't know, but but when you're looking at in terms of safety and what's happening, really they're just seeing cases among adults more commonly, um, not student to teacher or student to student. Um, And very few cases transmitted at school at all with all the protocols in place. So the idea is like that should be good news, right? But (laughs) the reality is there's a lot of fear out there and we are in in the middle of a surge. So, um, you know, we want to talk about data and science, but there's so much emotion in this. I mean, you know, as parents, as teachers, I mean, you know, it's it's hard, Mm -hmm. right? This is really Mm -hmm. hard. Yeah. It basically seems like um, what your story is saying is that People may get the virus in the community and they may bring it into the school, but because there are such strict um, protocols in place, masking, hand washing, distancing, you know, what happens if someone has symptoms, et cetera, that it's just not spreading. And so even if a case comes into the school, it's almost never going beyond that. 
right? Yeah, that's what the data is showing right now. There are cases. So they're reporting cases of students and teachers, but these are not cases that were transmitted at schools. And the problem is we need more of that data. We need counties and districts to be tracking where the case was transmitted because that's a big deal, right? Like you're gonna, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You're gonna have cases. But the question is, once a case comes into a school through a student or a staff member, is it spread? Is there an outbreak? That's what they're trying to prevent. And in most cases, what we're seeing from the research across the country and in the Bay Area is that they are uh, uh, basically stopping that transmission uh, in the school mm-hmm. once once a case hits the schoolhouse doors. And you even found a teacher or two who said they feel safer at school than they do out and about in the community because you can't really control what others are doing when you're in the community, but when you're in a school which is so regulated to even have permission to open in the first place, they felt safer being there. Yeah. I mean, she said it was really scary at first, right? Like, you you know, mm-hmm. we're supposed to be scared of this virus. We're supposed to be staying in our homes, right? So, um, you know, going back into a classroom was kind of scary. But once she got there and sort of took a look around her classroom and realized how she could space the desk and had all the cleaning supplies and the PPEs and the mask and the, the, the face shield and all of those things, she realized like she could get rid of the clutter. She could clean things easily. Like she, she, she felt safe and, um, it doesn't mean she's not scared of the virus. That fear is actually protecting them in the schools because it make, makes them be very, you know, regulated about the protocols, cleaning, hand washing, all the masking, all of those types of things. And so, um, you know, when you look at the transmission rate, it is lower in the classrooms than in the community at large. So, you know, mm-hmm. if people going to the grocery store, people going to outdoor dining or wherever they're going, it's safer in that classroom because it is so controlled. Right. And um, you say there are 1.2 million kids in the Bay Area. Most of them are still learning from home. What are you hearing about how distance learning is going? You know, what are we, 10, 9, 5,000 years later? <laughs> um, nine months? I don't know. It seems like a long time. <laughs> it depends on if you're a parent and how old your kids are. But it, it's, um, yeah, it, months and months. Um, you know, it depends. You, there are a lot of kids that are doing fine at distance learning. And, and you know, you don't hear from them quite as much, right? But... Um, Mm -hmm. What we do know, what research is telling us, what parents are telling us, what school communities are telling us, is that distance learning really is failing a lot of kids. And it's not because the teachers are terrible. They are doing their best. They are working harder than ever. But the reality is, it's just not what these kids need. And, you know, they're, they're not showing up. They're not doing as well. They're falling behind in reading, according to research and math. And uh, students of color, low-income students, are typically those at the highest risk of, of falling behind or struggling. And when you look at some of the research that's out there, you know, they're talking about, um, I'm trying to remember, was it 50 million year of what years of lives lost in, in oh, yeah, kids was that. it three million years I can't remember the data point but but the reality is that like life expectancy is connected to educational attainment and if you are um, losing educational attainment because these kids are falling behind they're at greater risk of dropping out they're you know all of those things um, you're really talking about a long-term impact um, from the distance learning and I think that's why medical professionals and others are really pushing hard because it isn't just is it safe to go back because of the virus you also have to look at the the other side of that scale which is the negative impact on the kids and and how do you balance 
you know, when, when to go back and that going back is, is, is better than, you know, keeping the kids, uh, at home in distance learning. And I, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, for many of them, they're seeing the negative effects outweigh, you know, the risk in this case and the, and the new data coming out is showing that the, the risk for teachers, for students is very, very low. Um, if, mm-hmm all the protocols are in place. And we've seen cases and incidents like the one recently in Danville where there was an outbreak in a classroom. It was a, an adult classroom for uh, adults with special needs. Um, and there, you know, there were eight people who, who got it in the school. Um, but they realized that protocols weren't followed and they needed to address the needs of these types of students more specifically with the different kinds of PPE. So, but it wasn't, it was, a, it was sort of an outlier, if you will, mm-hmm. in terms of, of um, you know, that type of situation. Those types of outbreaks are incredibly uncommon if non, non-existent in, in many districts or, or communities. Yeah. And you had a separate story, because you're so busy these days, um, about <laughs> Assemblyman Phil Ting's new legislation. Um, uh, some parents in San Francisco are hailing him as a hero for acknowledging how hard distance learning is. So what does he want to do? Well, so he introduced legislation yesterday, just as the session kicked off, um, to basically force schools to reopen if the county's uh, levels are re- caseloads reach certain levels and the county and the state authorize um, schools to reopen. And at that point, school as starting on March 1st, so it's not immediate, um, if it passes starting on March 1st, schools would have two weeks to reopen once county and state officials say they can reopen. So it really is a putting pressure on the schools to get ready for that. Um, you know, it's a huge question mark whether this is going to pass, whether the governor would sign it. Um, can you force local school districts, which are, you know, have have local control to reopen? I mean, so many questions. So, uh, but I think it's kind of a call to arms t- for districts to uh, really focus on reopening, that it's critical that they reopen for these students and, and to pay attention to the science, to pay attention to the negative effects. Um, whether that legislation is going to pass, it's a huge question mark. Because it, it wouldn't come with any money necessarily, right, to actually pay for all of the safety supplies? No, I mean, the, you know, it, it it is tied to the money that schools get anyway, that they would have to sort of abide by this in terms of attendance and these types of things. So he's tying mm. it to sort of how schools are funded. Um, it's a little wonky, but the idea being, if you can reopen, you should reopen. And it doesn't, we don't need to pay you to do that. You know, that that's right. just what you should be doing. It's part of your job. Yeah. Um, and in San Francisco, um, there's still no, no single child is back in a classroom. Um, and it looks like late January is the very earliest that that could happen. For the for um, the public schools, right. There's a lot of private school oh, sorry, kids. Sorry, public schools. Yeah, the, yes, the, <laughs> that's what I meant. The district schools. Yeah, private schools and charter schools are open in San Francisco, um, including high schools and others. Um, and even though we're surging right now in cases, they can remain open. The school district, however, has not requested to open and they do not expect to open to even a limited number of kids until the end of January. Yeah. And um, they have a new timeline that showed a few more groups coming back, one, another group in February, another group in March. But it looks like even by end of March would still only be a few thousand kids, right? Yeah. And I, and I, we're still not seeing, like, would high school kids ever go back this year? You know, it's it, they're the most at risk because they, they sort of have the same transmission rates as adults. Um, 
but uh, so, yeah, we're just uh, there's a big question mark on when a lot of these districts are going to go back. Um, you know, if this legislation does pass, it would and, and San Francisco returns to where they were before, like the yellow level. It would basically force the district's hand um, or seemingly so to to reopen to all students and to sort of acknowledge the data and the science and and do this with the protocols in place that this can be done safely. Mm-hmm. So Tings applies to K-12? Yes. Okay. Got it. Great. Well, thanks for the update. And I know you're a busy woman, so I'll let you go. But thanks so much for joining me today. <laughs> Thank you. We'll talk soon. <laughs> okay, bye. bye. Thanks to Adine Vaziri and Jill Tucker for joining me today, to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and to you for listening. <laughs>